Everyone loves a good story, and Jesus is a master storyteller. The stories Jesus tells are called parables. Parables are an ancient way of telling stories that are simple yet riddled to carry deeper meaning. In parables, Jesus shares a vision for the kingdom of God, giving his listeners hope that all things are headed somewhere good toward wholeness and restoration, the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells parables about God's kingdom because God's kingdom is so different than what we understand about kingdoms. Doesn't empire always use coercive domination and power? Not God's kingdom. This empire is one of self-giving love. And it's so hard for us to understand and see. So Jesus uses parables to get the attention of his listeners then and now about this very different vision of God's kingdom. And it may repel us at times, as it did some people of Jesus's time. They weren't ready to see what God was up to in this new movement of love. We may be there at times too. Or these parables may hook us and evoke our desire and expand our imagination and arouse curiosity about who God is and what God is doing now. Now, when all that we see in our world feels like the other kingdoms have won. Now, when we want hope too. And you may be surprised by some of the qualities parables boast. You might be shocked at who this God is that we find. You might just find yourself with eyes to see and ears to hear how the kingdom of God is here now within you and all around you as you develop these parable deciphering skills to see the kingdom of God in your stories and our stories and the world's stories every day as God's kingdom comes here on earth as in heaven, and we together learn to live in the reign of God's hidden, subversive, and prophetic kingdom of love. Everybody loves a good story. So let's spend our summer at Salt House listening to the master storyteller, Jesus, and his parables. What's good to be with you this morning? It feels like it's been forever, doesn't it? Like, like I missed the whole parable series. Like, I've missed all the good ones. I mean, the sower and the prodigal son and the yeast. And then last week, this other Pastor Zach. (laughs) Whatever. And Pastor Rachel talked about wineskins. Like, I'll be honest. I'm in my last year of seminary. I didn't even know there was a parable about wineskins. Like, they, they snuck that one in on me. But I'm excited I get to do a parable. And yet, it's been a while. So in prepping for this sermon, I really hit a wall. So I did what all good millennials do when you hit a wall. I went on Twitter. And I'm reading all about how Discovery bought HBO Max, and this like, might be the worst thing ever for capitalism or entertainment, or I'm not sure which. And it's interesting, because Ben and I have been watching this sci-fi show on HBO Max, and it's about this experiment where they observe people and try to collect enough data on them to see how they think. So like, if I were observed, they'd try to collect enough data to predict how I'd respond in future situations. And then on the show, this data gets uploaded to supercomputers, and companies can run simulations on it to like, see if I'm a good employee, or if I'm a security threat, or if I deserve housing, or if I deserve a job, or what they can do with my life. And it's like this really dystopian world where AI makes predictions about us and our behaviors, and then those predictions shape the lives we get to live. And it's really creepy, and it's also Twitter. 
Like this world where AI is learning all of our likes and our dislikes and our friends and our political views and like a picture of what we're eating right now, like this is happening. It's not science fiction, it's your cell phone. And a few examples of how data predicts and shapes our realities. I have a friend who started getting ads on Facebook to sell her wedding ring about two months before her husband asked her for a divorce. I started getting ads for rental properties in Redmond three days before my landlord notified me my rent was going up. And I actually think Instagram knew I was gay before I did. <laughs> While I was on my Twitter rabbit hole this week, I read a story about a woman who was on her own Twitter rabbit hole. And she saw a tweet from some guy arguing that women don't belong in leadership roles but should stay at home. And this woman was angry and she retweeted it and called him out for being a misogynistic bigot. And then she reached out to a bunch of her followers and told them to light him up. And they were determined that they were gonna take him down and like expose him for the hateful person that he was. But then someone pointed out that the account they were attacking only had four followers. And the profile picture was a cartoon. And the account was only about eight minutes old. And all of its tweets were offensive. Like the system knew exactly what tweet to show her to make her angry. And we've always known that there were trolls out there that tweeted things to piss us off. But more and more, we're learning that there are these AI bots that can like study our data and create fake accounts to generate tweets that really, really piss us off. So we already live in this dystopian world that tells us who we are, what we want, who we like, and more importantly, who we hate. And interestingly, Jesus told a parable about all this stuff. Maybe not the dystopian future data mining thing, but he told a story about who we love and who we hate. And the answer to that story has something to do with the kingdom of God. So Pastor Ryan, do you have a bulletin on you? No. No, okay, I do. Would you mind reading this parable for us? Sure. Well, this is in Luke 10. An expert on the law stood up to put Jesus to the test and said, teacher, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? And Jesus answered, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The expert on the law replied, you must love the most high God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But the expert on the law, seeking self-justification, pressed Jesus even further. And just who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, there was a traveler going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell prey to robbers. And the traveler was beaten and stripped naked, left half dead. A priest oh, happened to be going down the same road, and the priest saw the traveler lying beside the road, but passed by on the other side. And likewise, there was a Levite who came the same way, and this one, too, saw the afflicted traveler and passed by on the other side but a Samaritan. I think you're supposed to boo 
at this moment, is that right? Boo was taking the same road, also came upon the traveler, and filled with compassion, approached the traveler and dressed the wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And then the Samaritan put the wounded person on a donkey, went straight to an inn, and there took care of the injured one. The next day, the Samaritan took out two silver pieces, gave them to the innkeeper with the request, look after this person, and if there is any further expense, I'll repay you on the way back. So which of these three, in your opinion, was the neighbor to the traveler who fell in with the robbers? And the answer came, the one who showed compassion. And Jesus replied, then go and do the same. Thank you. You know this story. It's the Good Samaritan. Do you know um, what's interesting? I found out a few things in researching the sermon. This parable shows up in public policy more than any other part of the Bible. Hmm. We have Good Samaritan laws that protect people who are help accident victims. It's been quoted in more speeches by politicians than any other biblical reference. And there are more nonprofits that reference the Good Samaritan in either their name, their values, or their mission statement. So think like Samaritan's Purse than any other specific biblical passage. So this story really shapes our world. And it's a great parable, isn't it? Like it sort of moves Jesus's kingdom of God's rhetoric forward. It immediately establishes that the kingdom of God is about loving your neighbor, but then it dives into the follow-up question, this expert who asks, who then is my neighbor? There's sort of a gotcha implied, like who Jesus do I have to love and who Jesus do I get to hate? When I found out this was the parable I was preaching, I told Ben, I'm pretty sure I learned this parable from a grape. <laughs> and he knew what I meant. Like, this is Veggie Tales, right? This is the classic, God wants us to help each other, kids. And it follows a perfect fairy tale structure. Like, two people screw it up, and then the third gets it right. Like, this is the three little pigs. One builds with straw, one with sticks, third uses bricks. Be more like the third pig. Or it's Goldilocks, like, too hot, too cold, just right. I mean, if Disney could get the rights to The Good Samaritan, there'd be an animated musical already. I mean, we love this story formula of two people screw it up, the third one gets it right, be like the third one. And that structure actually helps us to hear it how Jesus' ancient Jewish audience would have heard it. Someone asks, who is my neighbor? We just know the first two are gonna screw up the neighbor thing. But the third will teach us who our neighbor is. But what we miss that the ancient audience would have heard is that the third is a Samaritan. Like Ryan told us, you're supposed to boo. Because if Jesus was telling a good Jewish fairy tale, he should have made it about a priest, a Levite, and a Jew. Because in ancient Israel, a priest is both a job and a birthright. You have to be born into being a priest. You're born into the tribe of Aaron, you're a priest. Same with a Levite. If you're born into the tribe of Levi, you're a Levite. And these two tribes both have specific roles in the temple. But if you're born into any of the other tribes, you're a Jew. Like, those are your options, priest, Levite, Jew. Samaritans are somewhere outside the system. I mean, does anyone know a Samaritan? They still exist, um, but barely. According to 2021 census data, there are roughly 840 Samaritans left in the world. Um, all of them live in the Middle East. And it isn't simple to define a Samaritan, no easier than it is to define a Muslim or a Norwegian or a Libertarian. There are nuances to each individual. 
But the whole story that answers this question of who is my neighbor hinges on understanding the relationship between ancient Jews and Samaritans. Because if the detail wasn't important, Jesus wouldn't have included it. So let's start there. There are three main schisms that separate Jews from Samaritans. And we'll have these for you on the screen as we go. Um, all these differences start when the monarchy splits after the reign of King Solomon. Um, so the first difference was really political. Monarchy splits apart, and the southern kingdom, which eventually became the Jews, insisted that the Messiah, the king, had to be descended from David's line. The northern kingdom, which generations later would become the Samaritans, were ruled by a series of charismatic leaders. So this first difference, on a basic level, was political. The second difference was cultural. So later, when the northern kingdom gets invaded by Assyria, Assyrian culture begins to influence the people that lived in the north. Um, so this includes things like food and marriage and family structures and dress, these kind of things. But the southern kingdom never gets invaded by Assyria. So these things never influence the Jews in the south. And we slowly see this cultural difference start to form. And then third, eventually there was a religious difference too. Because after everybody had been invaded by Babylon and exiled, they return and the Jews want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem while the Samaritans believed that the temple should be separate from the capital city, and they built their temple on Mount Gerizim. And those returning from exile added the prophets and the wisdom literature to the scripture, but the Samaritans were never exiled, so they maintained that the only sacred text was the Torah, these teachings of Moses. So to oversimplify a thousand years of cultural difference and generational divide, this is where the schism happens. There are political differences over who is the rightful king, there are cultural differences over food and dress and marriage and family. And there are religious differences over where to worship and what texts are sacred. And not to whitewash this too much or speak anachronistically, this does take place over a thousand years. So people are born Jewish or Samaritan. Like at a certain point, it's not ideology. It's also family of origin and blood. And yet both claimed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their ancestors. Both claimed an origin story of slavery in Egypt and deliverance by their one and only God, Yahweh. The ancient Jews thought the Samaritans had become corrupt, impure, and influenced by too many other cultures. And the ancient Samaritans thought the Jews had become too political and added too much to the tradition. So if you're Jesus and you're telling your audience that the answer to this question, who is my neighbor, the answer being a Samaritan is a bitter pill to swallow. And it's hard for us to totally get in the head of this kind of animosity. You can see this at the end when the expert can't even say his name. He doesn't say the Samaritan was the neighbor. He calls him the one that showed compassion. The one. And talk about disgust. And there are a few analogies that I think get at this tension more or less, but not perfectly. One classic, more evangelical take is to imagine the story and instead of a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, we could tell the story as a pastor, a choir director, and a homosexual. And in some more conservative Christian circles, that might get at the shock and awe that Jesus is going for. Or Jewish scholar Amy Jill Levine suggests that the story would work with today's political landscape in the Middle East. Imagine the traveler in the ditch is a Jewish man, and an Israeli official passes by, followed by an Israeli soldier, and then a Palestinian Muslim from Hamas is the one that stops. That might capture the tension a bit more. For me, I think of my friend Danae. 
um, back in Denver, there are two seminaries. Um, so as you know, I go to ILIF, and ILIF was originally a Methodist seminary. Um, it now has students from 14 denominations and other traditions. Um, and it's known in Denver for being queer-affirming and actively participating in liberal social justice causes in the Denver metro area. The other seminary back home is Denver Seminary. It was founded as a Southern Baptist school, but it now is also multi-denominational. And where ILIF leans into social justice, Denver Seminary leans into psychology. I actually toured Denver Seminary, but on the application, they ask you um, to sign the National Association of Evangelicals Pledge. And while there's nothing in the pledge that I can explicitly disagree with, as recently as last Tuesday, August 2nd, the National Association of Evangelicals issued a statement that Christian marriage is between a man and a woman. So I go to ILIF, um, but my friend Danae went to Denver Seminary, and there are political and cultural and religious differences between our schools. And I want to be clear, this metaphor isn't perfect. Uh, it misses the point that Jews are born Jews and Samaritans are born Samaritans. I mean, there's a component of this ancient hatred that is rooted in racism, and my story with Danae doesn't capture that. But shortly after I started at ILIF, Danae invited me over for dinner. Now, seminarians getting together for dinner is kind of a magical thing. Because when you're in seminary, all you want to talk about is being in seminary. Like, every single week, you read this most amazing thing you've ever read, and it's really all you can think about. And so when you start seminary, you really have to practice not talking seminary to everyone. So when you can get together with another seminarian, you don't have to control your excitement, and it just feels magical. So, Danae invited me over for dinner, but I was nervous. Because I go to ILIF, like I think Jesus is for the poor and the marginalized. I think that grace is what saves us, not purity. I think that queer people are created in the image of God and perfect as they are. And Danae goes to that school. Like they think that Jesus is for nationalists and good conservatives. And they think that like only Christians are saved and they erase people's culture to do it. And they hate gay people, like they wanna change me. But when I met Danae for dinner, it was magical. We did what seminarians do. We nerded out on the most amazing thing we'd read that week. And it turned out our theologies aren't that different. I'm not the godless anarchist that Denver Seminary says I am. And Danae was not the born-again homophobe that Ilif told me she would be. In fact, Danae has graduated from Denver Seminary and has her own ministry providing mental health resources and trauma care to queer and marginalized people in Texas. And many from her cohort do the same work. It turns out that Denver Seminary grads are my neighbor, and they do pretty awesome Kingdom of God stuff. And I think this little nugget is what the Good Samaritan gets at. It's easy for us to think that we know people by their race, their gender, their sexuality, their religion, their political affiliation, their vaccination status, the clothes they wear, the bumper stickers on their car. We think we can know all there is to know about a person with any one of these metrics. But it's not that simple. Because Jesus comes along and says, those people that you think are irredeemable, God loves those people. Those people are part of the story of God. So to be clear, this answer is systemic, not individual. It, this is speaking truth to power. This is not saying that the family member that abused you is the hero of the story. And it's not saying that you have to drop all boundaries with all people that are bad for your mental health. I'm not saying that people who are taking away your rights or threatening your lifestyle are correct. But I am asking, where have we been biased for too long? Where have we decided that those people aren't as good as us?
Where have we been used by the system and taught who to hate? And we aren't even sure why anymore. Because the kingdom of God is found when we see the image of God in someone we dismissed. The kingdom of God is found when we stop participating in the rhetoric of division and othering and hate-tweeting everything that pisses us off. The kingdom of God is found when we admit that we were wrong. To take this a step further, there's a saying in sermon classes that you live what you preach. And in the few months I've been preaching here at Salt House, that has been true every single time. And for this sermon, it was in this question I kept asking, who are the modern Samaritans? Who are the people that we hate today? Like, is this story about racism? Is it homophobia? Is this abortion? Is it about immigration? Like, who do we at Salt House hate? Which is the same question that this dystopian social media data question is asking. Who do we hate? And how can we use that hate to pass policy, to sell things, to win elections, to manipulate people, to be more and more and more and more in control? Tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor so I can love them and use my hate for those other people to do something productive? And I have to confess, I don't need AI to tell me how to classify people. I don't need AI to oversimplify complex human relationships into bulleted lists. I mean, Jason, can we put those bullets back on the screen? In my 21st century data-driven brain, my very first impulse in writing this sermon was to define Samaritans, like one, two, three. I don't want to hate anyone, but I do analyze, and I do classify, and I draw lines of difference, and I put people in boxes all by myself, which is the question this expert is asking Jesus. Who do I have to love, and who am I allowed to hate? But the Samar the Jesus takes the Samaritans, the very people his audience hates, and Jesus says, no one is outside the story of God. Samaritans are your neighbor. Samaritans are the kingdom of God. The boxes we put people in, they don't help us love people any better. And the boxes that people put us in are not the loving voice of God. And of course, having words to understand and describe our identity or our heritage or our experience is important. I mean, it's essential to describing and discussing the diversity of creation. But Jesus says, all people are loved by God. If you're hung up on the details, you'll miss the kingdom of God when it's right in front of you. And we do, right? And so did the people in Jesus's day. They didn't expect the Samaritan to be the hero, and they didn't expect Jesus to be the savior. They expected a savior who would defeat the people they hated, and instead they got a savior who was killed by a different group of people that they hated. A savior who forgave those very people who killed him. And that's the kingdom of God when these gotcha questions of who is my neighbor don't matter, when we don't need to analyze the differences or understand our neighbor, when we can say, that's your identity, that's your experience and your wisdom, this is mine, I love you, I'm here to fight for you, and I'm here to save you. That's the kingdom of God. So now, as part of this parable series, we're going to open it up for reflection. This is the open mic portion we've, I've never done before. Um, so it's a time for you to share anything that comes up when you think of the Good Samaritan. Um, as you know, Ryan's my official sermon mentor, so he's the only one that gets to give like real criticism. Um, ben will probably also critique it on the way home, and I'm sure there's a text from my mom waiting. Um, but now it's just a time for you to share whatever's on your heart. Um, not really a back and forth discussion, but a thought or two that came up for you this morning. Um, so we have a microphone to bring around. Ryan's got a microphone to bring around. 
And remember, we are live on the internet, so anything you say can and will be used against you. AI has base codes. Somebody's mm. changing them mm, for true. their own gain. Yes. And people are signaling. Yes. Because they didn't use a condom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm dealing with it over there. Yeah. I'm watching them signal to the TV. I'm watching them signal everywhere. Yeah. I go. And my uncle made Archibald and Ghost Program in Germany when he taught their computers. Oh, very cool. Thanks. Very cool. Ghost Program is military. Archibald is public. Very cool. It came into me. It found me in jail. Cool. They dumped 7.8 million souls on me in a day. Wow. Very Another. What's it doing in you? What's this parable doing in you? I like how you called out the hidden question of who is my neighbor, not meaning just who do I have to love, but who do I get to hate, mm. which I think is at the bottom of it and really important to specify. Mm. The hate part, you got to learn to reprogram I think the other thing that um, was really resonating with me, though, was that um, the, the Samaritan reacted with an overabundance of generosity. Mm. Yes. He didn't just take the, you know, injured person to, you know, it, it didn't just clean him up on the side of the road and say, now you can, now you can walk on home. Yeah. He took him to an inn, and yeah. then he saw to his needs beyond when he could even stay there. Yeah. It just the overabundance of generosity is available in people that we may not want to see it from. Absolutely. Thank you. I feel like listening to the sermon, I was thinking in my mind that the situation of the three people and then the, the neighbor was so often found in just everyday life in the public school system and in work and in a lot of things. It's really common. Yeah. It makes me think about how it's hard to hate people up close mm. and um, how we are conditioned to think of people as categories, but when you actually see them and their humanity and who they are as individuals, then you see them as people, just yeah. like, you know, just like yourself. So yeah. um, that's something that's been a, a big thing that's changed in my life, too, instead of um, just, I don't know, as, I, as I've gotten to know more people with more um, just differences in where they come from or who they are, it's, uh, it's, surprising how much you can uh, you can see them as people instead of categories yeah mm -hmm. well I'll leave you with this um, so we talked about data shaping our world and we've talked about how this story is in public policy that also shapes our world more than any other passage of the Bible so I'll give you this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. 
he wrote that the subversive nature of the Samaritan is that he didn't ask, what will happen to me if I help this person? He asked, what will happen to this person if I do not help them? What will happen to this person if I do not help them? If that were the question that shaped our world, imagine what a world that would be. That would be the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.